Welcome to Catalyst Summer. We're doing Encanto today. Uh, this is what we're doing throughout the summer. We're talking about how the film Encanto can help orient us towards spiritual growth. And so we're beginning, I think appropriately, with the matriarch of the La Familia Madrigal, Abuela. Uh, early in the film, in the song we did last week, right, when, when Mirabelle is introducing us to her entire family, she tells us uh, exactly who Abuela is. She says this, um, let's be clear, Abuela runs the show. She led us here so many years ago. And that's, uh, again, that's what we see in that montage that we were just talking about, right? How, how uh, through the sacrifice of her husband that created this magic for the family, Abuela is able to lead the family to this space where they're able to build uh, La Casita, right, their house uh, that protects them. And not only them, but actually through their magic, enables this entire community to thrive and flourish around them. And so Abuela really sees herself as the guardian of that sacrifice, right? The guardian of the gift of safety and security. She is the one who is protecting the family. She is the one who is protecting the magic that enables the family to flourish. And, and again, not just the family, but the entire community that surrounds them. Abuela sees this all on her shoulders. Um, and, and again, uh, we see in the beginning of the movie even how much she cares about her family and how much she cares about the community and how that's all wrapped up in her concern for the magic. Uh, unfortunately, though, as the film progresses, we realize that Abuela's passion for protecting her people has become uh, corrupted in, in some very subtle ways. Uh, she has been steamrolling the family, and, and people are doing things that they have no interest in doing, even including you know, marriages to certain people uh, in the village, not because they're in love, not because this is what they want, but because Abuela thinks it's for the best. And so we, we recognize that the family has actually become unhealthy in, in a number of ways because no one has the courage to stand up to Abuela. And it's actually causing the magic to sputter and flicker and fade. And of course, Abuela doesn't realize this. She doesn't know why it's happening. Uh, and it's not until her big confrontation with Mirabelle, uh, the, her granddaughter, who's the, the center of the film, that the truth comes out. In, in their big confrontation, Abuela blames Mirabelle for the magic failing, for not caring about the family, for not doing everything that she can to protect the family the way Abuela does. And here's what Mirabelle says in return. She says, I'll never be good enough for you. No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard any of us tries, we all love this family. You're the one breaking our home. The miracle is dying because of you. Now, that's incredibly harsh, right? But it was also true. This is something that we were able to see as the movie progressed. And we're able to see that it, it, it was actually Abuela's love for her family and for the community and for the miracle, the milagro, that caused her to behave the way she is. And it's not until Mirabelle stands up to her and tells her the plain, unvarnished truth that Abuela is able to see how she has strayed from her course. 
And so it, it is in fact that very, uh, that very confrontation that enables Abuela to see herself truly, to apologize, and then for the family to be restored and to become much healthier than they were at the beginning of the movie. So I want to ask, as we're beginning this morning, if you know someone like Abuela. Someone who has a deep sense of justice, who really cares about right and wrong, um, but who maybe is a little bit of a steamroller, right? Someone that you just don't want to get in the way of when they have something in their head uh, because they know what's right and no one's going to tell them otherwise. Someone that kind of, uh, someone that takes over a room when they walk in and someone that, that no one can tell them how it's going to be because they already know. But if you can get to a safe space with that person, they have an incredibly tender heart under that prickly exterior. They're incredibly, uh, actually one of the ways you can tell these people is by uh, handing them a baby, actually. Uh, these kinds of people, these, these abuela types, these challenger types, when they encounter a baby, they completely fall apart and melt. And you see this entire other side of them come out that you're like, wait, is this even the same person? Because these kinds of people they ex their whole existence is around defending the defenseless and protecting the vulnerable, and nothing embodies that more than a baby, right? And so um, you see this whole different side of them come out. Um, now, if you know someone like that, we're going to talk about them today. There are Enneagram 8s. They're what are called the challengers. And we're going to talk about what it takes for an 8 to be healthy and flourishing, because when 8s are healthy, ooh, they are the best people to have on your side when you're fighting for justice, when you're working uh, for good. Uh, of course, it is possible to be steamrolled by them for eights to do a lot of damage. So if you are an eight, right, we're going to talk about that too. We're going to talk about why you have a tendency to do that and what the path towards health is. Um, and so I want to begin this morning uh, by moving back into worship with Nathan because uh, what we see reflected in Enneagram 8s is the justice of God, this deep concern that no one is left out, that, that no one slips through the cracks, that everyone has a place and is valuable and has what they need to flourish. That's what 8s help us to see, and that's how 8s help us to know God better. So we're going to begin by singing and by celebrating that God, uh, and I'm going to invite you to join us. If you're online with us, if you're in person with us, either way, feel free to stand up with us and get ready to hand it over to Nathan and Cynthia. Uh, so, welcome back. Welcome back to our summer of the Enneagram. Uh, let me explain a little bit of what we're doing this summer. For those of you who maybe never heard of Enneagram, maybe you have not seen Encanto, that's okay. Uh, so the Enneagram is a tool for spiritual direction and spiritual growth. And on its surface, it looks like a personality profile like Myers-Briggs or StrengthsFinder or something like that. Because in the Enneagram, there are nine numbers. And everyone is one of the nine numbers. And the, the numbers represent personas uh, that, that we have. Um, the, what makes the Enneagram different from personality profiles is this. And it's actually uh, the, uh, the, one of the big books we're using to shape this series. It's called The Road Back to You. It's by a guy named Ian Cron. And he's the one that said this to me. I, I was at a thing where he was speaking, and he said, uh, you know, personality profiles tell you who you really are, right? You take the Myers-Briggs and you learn, oh, this is who I am, this is how I interact better, whatever. Take the strengths finder, it's like, oh, these are my top five strengths, so this helps me be a better employee or be a better friend or whatever. They tell you who you really are. The Enneagram, on the other hand, tells you who you're really not, 
okay? When you find what number you are, whether you're an eight like we're talking about today or a three like I am or whatever Nathan is, whatever number that is, uh, it's a mystery we'll hopefully find solved by the end of the summer. We'll see. Uh, uh, Whatever number you are, that is a persona that we create, uh, usually when we're really young. And it's a way to protect our authentic selves, our true selves, from a world that is dangerous in some way. And the dangers really kind of fall into three categories that the Enneagram calls triads. Uh, some people are, uh, are kind of ruled or motivated by anger, which is where we're starting. We're starting with the anger triads. We're looking at the eights, the nines, and the ones. Uh, some people are motivated by shame, the twos, threes, and fours. That's where I fall. And some people believe lies that are based on fears. That's the five, sixes, and sevens. Um, and so based on whatever core lie you believe, we create these personas, what, what theologians and mystics call our shadow selves, right? They're these selves that are not our true self. They're a false self that we create to protect our authentic selves from some kind of hostility in the world. Again, anger, shame, or fear of some kind. Uh, the work of spiritual growth then, and we talked about this last week, right, is to Uh, move past our shadow selves, to shine the light of God's loving truth on those shadow selves, see the ways in which we are uh, hiding from God and hiding from ourselves and hiding from the world, and then live into the truth. Uh, And it's important that we know that in, in the light of God's loving gaze, what we find is not condemnation or rejection or judgment, but, but love. So, so all of this whole series at its core is about us getting to know who God created us to be better, getting to know one another better, because uh, we're doing nine numbers, but each of us is only one number, and you don't change. Like Some people are like, oh, I started out as a two, but now I'm a seven. That's not how it works, right? We're all one number. We're always one number, right? So like if, we, if you're an eight and we're talking about you today, does that mean you just check out for the rest of the summer? You're like, bye, I did, you know, did my work, I'm gone. Hopefully not, right? Hopefully what you recognize is though I'm one of the numbers, I know and I'm in relationship with people who are all of the other numbers, and so getting to know not only how, how God made me and what my shadow work looks like, but also getting to know other people, how God made them and what their shadow work looks like, it helps us to be a better community together. It helps us to grow together, to be stronger together, to love well. It makes our relationship stronger. It helps us to be a better church. And then, of course, all of it will help us know God better, help us know how we were created in God's image and how God loves us, how God sees us, and then how God is inviting us to grow. I'm really excited. And of course, we're doing this in a fun way through the movie Encanto, because I am even more convinced every time I come back and work on another sermon that whoever wrote this movie, and I could have looked it up, but I didn't. I'm sorry, right? It's a mystery. No one knows. No, we know who wrote the movie, right? But I'm convinced that whoever they are, those magnificent strangers, uh, that they wrote this according to the Enneagram, because all of the main characters of Encanto mirror different numbers on the Enneagram. And so each week, we're going to take one of the numbers, like today, we're talking about eights, and we're going to go to the character in Encanto that, that matches up with them. And that, in, in this case, that's Abuela. Abuela is the eight. She is the challenger character in the Enneagram. Okay, so that's, yeah, so today's, today's Abuela's day. So I want to begin by reading some of the descriptions out of The Road Back to You. That's the, the, one of the books we're using that describe what eights are like, um, both when you are in an average place. So this is, this is it, right? So here we go. So let's look at average eights. See if this describes you, or it might describe someone you know, okay? Average eights tend to be steamrollers more than diplomats. They are dualistic thinkers, right? So people are good or bad, things are right or wrong, right? Very dualistic. They prefer to lead, they struggle to follow, and they use aggression to emotionally protect themselves. 
They have little patience with people who are indecisive or who don't pull their weight. That's, that's average eights, okay? Now, at their unhealthiest, here's what eights are like. Unhealthy eights are preoccupied with the idea that they are going to be betrayed. So they're suspicious and slow to trust others. They resort to revenge when they're wronged, and they believe that they can change reality, and they make their own rules, and they expect others to follow them. Ooh, okay? Eights can be scary when they're unhealthy. But here's the good news, right? Here's what a, here's what a healthy eight looks like. Healthy eights are great friends, exceptional leaders, and champions of those who cannot fight on their own behalf. They have the intelligence, courage, and stamina to do what others say can't be done. They have learned to use power in the right measure and at the right times, and they understand vulnerability and even embrace it at times. Okay? That's a healthy eight. That's why, that's eights, if you're here, if right now you feel pretty uncomfortable, like I snuck into your room and copied your diary, okay? That's because we need you. We need you to be healthy. Listen to that person. That person sounds amazing because you are amazing. When you do your work, when you be fully who God created you to be, you are a powerful force to be reckoned with. And of course, like all of us, when you're unhealthy, you're a Tasmanian devil. Okay, of course, right? That's how all of us, I promise you, every number we go through, when you get to the unhealthy part, you're like, yes, right? It's not good to be unhealthy. We all know that. That's not rocket science. Right? I'm, not, I'm not breaking news here. Right? We're all trying to work towards health. And all of us, when we are healthy, when we are the way God created us to be, we are a powerful force. Eights, you are just, you are just lightning in a bottle when it comes to getting work done, to doing, accomplishing the impossible, to defending the defenseless, all of that. You are, you are amazing. Okay? So what, where did this all come from for an eight? Uh, eights learned somewhere early on that the world is a dangerous place. Okay, so uh, one of my best friends is an eight. He came from a very unstable home environment, okay? Uh, grew up in poverty. Uh, parents were not people who could be relied on to provide for. And so he learned early on that he had to, he had to take care of himself, okay? Maybe all, this could also be someone who was bullied a lot when they were young or something like that. But whatever it is, eights learned early on that the world was dangerous for them. Think about Abuela, right? When she was young and married, she and her family became refugees. They're fleeing from some kind of military occupation. So she learned early on, you can't trust the world. Okay? The, the message that eights who learned as kids is that out there it's survival of the fittest and vulnerability makes you a target. So eights created this armor that they wear that no one can get through. They are tough, and they are scary. They are powerful. And no one is going to be able to get through that armor. That's, that's what eights learned early on, okay? Now, again, when eights are healthy, uh, this anger that they have, this anger at the world, this anger that, the, uh, that they direct out at a world that is a dangerous, unsafe place that exploits the vulnerable, this anger that eights have in them, when they're healthy, it can fuel them like a, like a fire that keeps everyone warm, right? And for Abuela, it, it, it's, it was the, the miracle, the magic that made the casita, the magical house for them all, right? It's a beautiful thing. However, when eights are unhealthy, that fire can get out of control and burn everything down. So what does spiritual health look like for eights? Well, uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with us to John chapter 4. Uh, and if you grab one of the Bibles out of the back, that is on page 639. Feel free to keep that. Consider that a gift. 
Uh, as you're turning to John 4 or clicking over to it on your smart devices or whatever, uh, I, was, I was going through the Bible looking at all these different people that I thought might be eights, and I just, I couldn't get away from the woman at the well. I know if you've been around Catalyst, I preach on her like seven times a year. I can't help it. Gospel of John is my favorite gospel, and this story is one of the major reasons why. So we're going there again, okay, because I think she is just a great example of an Enneagram 8. Uh, the background you need for this story is that Jesus has an encounter with this, this woman. And we're not going to go through all the politics and the racial stuff and stuff like that, but here's what you need to know. The reason John chose to highlight this story is because Jesus and this woman are like on the vast opposite ends of the social radar from each other. He is a well-respected male Jewish rabbi. Okay, so he is kind of at the top of his social hierarchy. Okay, she is a... Um, a sinful, exploited uh, Samaritan woman. Okay, so she is, at, she is the most vulnerable of the people. Okay, and, and again, we don't have time to get into socially wild, but, but, but think about it this way. We know that the people, uh, people statistically who are the most vulnerable in our culture today are black trans women. Right? Black trans women are the most, social, uh, most socially vulnerable, have the least protection under the law, most likely to experience violence and things like that. Okay? So take like your average like, Texas megachurch pastor, right? well-respected, probably wife and dog and 2.5 kids in the picket fence and that whole thing, right? very, very socially insulated and protected, talking to a black trans woman. Okay? That's, that's kind of what John was wanting us to see in this story here when Jesus approaches this woman. She has experienced the world as a very dangerous place, a place that is constantly trying to exploit her, to take advantage of her, to use her for its own devices. Okay? And then she encounters Jesus, who, again, as far as she can tell, is just one more guy who wants to use and abuse her. And so she responds to him. You'll see this, and I'm going to try to read this uh, this way. She responds to him with a lot of sarcasm and biting humor. I think some people read her as this like wide-eyed waif who's like asking Jesus these questions out of like, oh my goodness, good sir, could you tell me more about, you know, and that's just not like, I don't know if you've ever met someone who's been through some stuff, but that's just not typically how they are, right? They're very savvy and they tend to be really sharp-tongued. And so um, you can see that actually in her responses. And I'm, uh, when I read, I'm going to try to try to give it a little bit of that as I read it. So we're going to begin in, in verse 4 and read through verse 15. So Jesus had to go through Samaria on his way to where he's going. And so eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there and Jesus was tired from a long walk. So he sat wearily beside the well around noontime. And soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, please give me a drink. Now, again, we don't have time to go through all of this, but um, you, you know what a meet-cute is in a rom-com? It's like where the two people first meet for the first time, and there's like some kind of weird hijinks. In the Bible, guy meets girl at well was the classic meet-cute. There's like 10 stories in the Old Testament where guy meets girl at well, they fall in love and get married, okay? And so when Jesus saddles up to this well, and he's like, hey there, can I get a drink? Like, this is why she, she thinks she knows what's going on, right? Here's another guy trying another cheesy pickup line at the watering hole, right? That, okay? And that's why she responds the way she does. He was alone because his disciples had gone, on, gone into the village to buy some food. And so the woman was surprised because Jews usually refuse to have anything to do with Samaritans. So she says to Jesus, um, yeah, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. So why are you asking me for a drink? And Jesus replies, 
If you only knew the gift that God has for you and who you're speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water, right? So again, hear it through her, her ears. Jesus is like, hey there, can I have a drink? And she's like, what? Who even are you, dude? And he's like, well, if you knew who I am, you'd be asking me for a drink instead, right? And so she's like, okay, uh, but you don't even have a bucket, dude, right? And this well is very deep. So where would you even get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well in the first place? I mean, how can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So she's letting him know that he knows, she knows the story, right? She's picking up what he's laying down, or at least what she thinks he's laying down. And Jesus replies, anyone who drinks this water again will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It will become a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. This sounds like his bragging has gotten out of control, right? Now, not only is he going to give her water instead of her give him water, but now apparently his water is so good that she'll never thirst again, right? She's been here before. She's met this guy before, so she thinks. And so she's, she kind of, you can hear the eye roll, right? Please, sir. Give me this water. Then I'll never have to be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to go. It sounds like a great deal, right? So again, she responds with what we would expect Nate to respond to, right? Prickly, a lot of bluster, a lot of sarcasm. And what she can't see because of the armor that she has up is that Jesus is not trying pickup lines on her. Right? Jesus is not actually another in a long line of men who want to use and abuse her. Jesus is actually speaking truth to her in this gentle way that uh, never, never gets combative with her, but also doesn't uh, quit. Right? He keeps insisting. And so she ends up sort of accidentally, I think, opening up a little bit. She says, go ahead and give me this water. Sure, whatever, man. Right? Go ahead, shoot your shot. And it's enough for Jesus to reach right into her life and identify the wound that she is hiding. Look what he does next. He says, so she says, you know, okay, yeah, give me this water, man. Sounds good. And he says, go and get your husband. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus goes, you're right. You don't have a husband. You have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. Again, we don't know the details of that, but in the ancient world, women were not in charge of who was married, right? This was a patriarchal culture, and so whatever is happening here, it was not pleasant for this woman to live through, right? And again, now she's living with a guy who won't even do her the honor of marrying her. She is doing what she has to do to get by, to survive. She is very far from thriving. And Jesus, in this moment of accidental vulnerability that she shows, points right to the heart of that wound. And of course, what we see with Jesus is not judgment, is not condemnation, but care. He sees her. He knows her. And in the, we're going we're gonna to pause here and sing another song together, but, but I, what we're going to see in the aftermath of this is that the woman experiences this. She realizes in this moment, Jesus is not here to try to use her. Jesus is not here to abuse her. Jesus is here to love her, to connect with her. He is identifying himself as a person who is truly safe, someone with who she can literally let down the walls, take off her armor, and allow herself to be seen 
for who she is. This is a powerful moment for her. And I think it's a powerful moment for any of us who are able to step away from our shadows and step into the loving light of God's gaze. And so I want to invite us to just pause there and to kind of meditate on this moment where Jesus sees this woman and responds to her with love. And I want us to take that back into worship. I want us to take us that back into singing. Let's celebrate now this God who sees us for who we truly are and who knows us and who loves us. A God who meets us not with condemnation, uh, but with welcome. Would you stand with me? So I want to ask now, what is the, what is the path to transformation for an eight? Right? What, is, what is the path that, that we can take to find wholeness and to, and to be spiritually healthy? Uh, well, again, this woman, uh, she sort of accidentally opened up a space for Jesus to speak this truth into her, to identify this wounding that she has, to, to kind of pierce through her armor to her vulnerable, authentic self. And uh, I, th- <laughs> I think most of us, if Jesus did something this direct with us, would be like, and just run away, right? Drop the water jar and run, and take off running. But the woman doesn't. Uh, I want to read her response because, uh, again, a lot of people, I've seen people say that she's like changing the subject here or trying to avoid an uncomfortable conversation, but, but I just I don't think that's what's happening here. So I want, to, I want to finish this little bit of the story and then make a couple of observations. So Jesus has just said, that's right, you don't have a husband, you have five, and now you're living with a guy and he's not even your husband. And her response is, uh, sir, you must be a prophet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist on uh, that Jerusalem is the only place of worship? And Jesus says, um, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain where they are, right, where the Samaritan temple is, or in Jerusalem where the Jewish temple is. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes to the Jews. But the time is coming, and it is, indeed is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, and so those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman says, you know, I know that this guy called Messiah is coming, the one who's called the Christ, and when he comes, he's going to explain everything to us. And then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Okay? There's a couple of interesting things here. One, again, I just love that, like, as soon as Jesus says, that's right, go get your husband, uh, and then he says, you know, you have five, you've had five, you're now she, she says, oh, you're a prophet, and she immediately brings up politics and religion which you're not supposed to ever do, right? Certainly not with strangers. And it's a weird transition from who's going to get who water to now who's right about God, except if you're an eight, right? This is actually classic eight language. Eights are incredibly no-nonsense. They, they don't pull any punches. They're straight to the point. And so as soon as this woman realizes that the guy that she is talking to is not who she thought he was, she says, okay, well, let's just, let's just cut right to the chase. Who's right? Is it you or is it me? Come on. You wanted to go deep? We're deep now. You ready? And Jesus, of course, is ready. This is what he's been waiting for, right? And so what I love about this is that it closes with Jesus telling her he's the Messiah. And this may not seem like a big deal to us because like, we, we've known for 2,000 years that he's the Messiah, but in the Gospels, actually, Jesus keeps his messianic identity really close to the chest. Right? And in the Gospel of John, this is the first person that Jesus has told that he is the Messiah. So he responds to the woman's vulnerability with vulnerability of his own. And eights, this is very important for you. Because the last thing you want to do is be vulnerable. 
Okay? You are convinced, you have been convinced for a long time, that the world will hurt you if you are vulnerable. And here's the thing, you're right. You're right. If we choose to be vulnerable, we're going to get hurt. Okay, vulnerability is risk, and we live in a world where no risk is 100% certain, right? So let me just, let's just get it out of the way. If you choose to be vulnerable, it is risky. You will be hurt. But being hurt is not the end of the world. We can choose to be vulnerable, we can choose to embrace the reality of hurt, and we can know that that is not going to be the end of us. That in fact what happens is Jesus meets us in our vulnerability. Because Jesus went first. Jesus made himself vulnerable when he became a baby, when he lived a human life. And what did that get him? It got him crucified, right? But God refused to let a world characterized by survival of the fittest have the last word. That's why the resurrection is so important. When the world assaulted God's own vulnerability, God raised Jesus from the dead. And so eights, listen, I know that it's scary. I know it's scary to risk hurt. But if we do that, if you can risk being vulnerable, if you can choose to be courageous enough to be vulnerable, God is with you in that. And even when you are hurt, God will continue to work to protect and to preserve you and to bring beauty out of that hurt. Okay, I know that's scary but that's how God works. And if you're going to be healthy, you've got to learn vulnerability. Because as long as you have your armor up, you're going to miss what God has for you. And you're going to do real damage to the people around you. Again, just like Abuela, right? Just like her. What it took was her hearing the unvarnished truth from her granddaughter. You're, you're the one destroying this family. And it was only then that she could be vulnerable. She could admit what she had done. She could apologize to her family, which is an extreme, if you've ever had to apologize for something, which I'm assuming we all have, right? It, it, it makes us extremely vulnerable. But that was the path for the Madrigal family to healing. And that's the path for you as an eight to healing as well. So before we go any further, before I t- we talk about the spiritual uh, the spiritual growth that is, is possible for AIDS and then what, what those of us who love AIDS can do as, as people who love them and care about them and want to support them, I want to bring us to the communion table because we just should not rush, rush past this call to vulnerability. We talk a lot in the church about Jesus dying for us. We talk a lot less about uh, us being invited to die with him. But that's exactly what Paul says we do. So when we come to the communion table, it's a way of picking up our own crosses and following after Jesus as his disciples. It's a choice to engage the world the way Jesus did, to engage with courage and vulnerability the way that Jesus did. And so before we come to the table today, I'm going to ask you some questions, some prayer uh, examine questions, give you some space to reflect prayerfully on them. And they're going to be questions that are kind of oriented towards eights. Um, but even if you're not an eight, I hope you can find some, um, some good in, in meditating on these questions in your own spirit. Uh, then after we've done that, we're going to pray together and then receive communion together. So here's the first question I want you to consider. And again, make this a prayer. Ask, ask God this question, right? What makes me angry?
Now, how can I discern whether my anger is righteous or not? Now, where do I avoid vulnerability? Are there particular spaces, particular relationships? Where do I avoid vulnerability? finally, with whom is God calling me to be vulnerable? Is there a particular relationship, particular space, but where is God calling me to be vulnerable this week? All right, let's pray together. God, you have shown us this morning in the story of the woman that you encountered at the well that you are the God who engages with us and who is not afraid of our prickly natures, but you continue to engage us with gentleness and with love, continuing to invite us to experience your authentic and deep love for us, a love that is not exploitative or abusive, but is empowering and is uplifting and is transformative. We, we confess that we live in a world where that feels dangerous. It feels dangerous to trust like that, to put ourselves out there like that, to make ourselves vulnerable like that. And yet you have shown us that if we want to be a true uh, power and a true force for the most vulnerable in this world, that is what is required of us because that is how you engaged our world. And so we come to your communion table today where you made yourself vulnerable to us. You gave us these elements, and we pray that as we receive them, that they would become a spiritual food for us, that in receiving these elements, we might too uh, know you at your most vulnerable and be able to imitate you in that as well. Send us forth from this place as a people who is not afraid to face a dangerous world and the possibilities of hurt because we know that you are with us, that you are ahead of us, and you come behind us. We have these prayers now and we approach your table this morning in the name of your son, Jesus. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he shared this meal with his disciples. And during that meal, he gave them a loaf of bread, breaking it and saying, this is my body broken for you. Take it and eat it. When the meal was finished, he gave them a cup of wine and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Take it and drink it. And so now we too eat and drink. And as we do, we remember Jesus's death until he returns.
give you a little bit of homework. So eights, one of the key ways that you grow spiritually is through choosing vulnerability. And so I know that's hard for you. I know that feels scary. But I know you can do it because you're an eight. You're tough. Um, that's your whole thing. So uh, here's my challenge to you. Um, you're going to have to retrain your brain and retrain your spirit to think of vulnerability as a part of your toughness, okay, right? Because right now it feels like a threat. And so if, if that's difficult for you, uh, I want you to find someone in your life. That could be a mentor, it could be a romantic partner, it could be a, a friend, uh, or someone in your, your small group or C group or something like that. Just find someone that you can practice being vulnerable with. Okay, because the more you do that, the, the, more, the easier it becomes for you. So that, that's, that's going to be a good way for you to, to grow spiritually. Now, for the rest of us who are not eights, again, I'm not an eight, I'm a three, right? Um, here's the thing. We tend to probably shy away from the eights in our lives because they're so tough, but eights really appreciate and need plain talk and tough talk. Uh, again, like Jesus did with the woman, like Mirabelle did with Abuela. And so here's my challenge to you. If you know someone who's an eight, don't be afraid to just speak plainly to them. Cut right to the chase. They're no-nonsense, straight-to-the-point kind of people. You can be that person with them. And if you practice being that with them, it really helps them to trust you and to begin to be their full self with you. So that's my challenge to the rest of us, right? Kind of practice that being fully present and, and speaking directly uh, with eights. Uh, if we do that, folks, uh, I think we'll find that the eights among us flourish. Uh, they become real leaders among us and help us see the people in our community who are the most vulnerable, the people who need our support the most. And they are the ones who can accomplish miracles among us. They are the ones who, who have the energy to do what otherwise maybe could not be done. Um, so we really do need them, and we need, and we need them to lead us. We need them to celebrate with us. And, and we need to know that what they show us is God's heart for the most vulnerable among us. So uh, thank you, Aids, for being a part of our congregation. Thank you for your gift to our church and to the world around us. And I, will send, I want to send all of us now with a blessing uh, in the spirit of that eight champion, uh, being a champion for justice. At Catalyst, we're going into a world that is filled with people who are vulnerable, people who don't have some of the same protections that many of us enjoy. And those are the people that God calls us to attend to, to care for. As you go, may you find your eyes open to where those people are in your life. May, you, may your ears be open to this, their cries. And may you find yourself drawn to them and loving them the way God notices them and loves them. Go in the grace and peace of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we'll see you next week.